We'll be in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8. I won't be reading all of it, uh, but I'll be reading select parts of it so that we can get an understanding of what is happening here. Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Then down to verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. A recent article in the New York Times was titled, How Astrology Took Over the Internet. And it describes this really fascinating rise in popularity of astrology. And what the article noted is that the rise in popularity has come in times of political and economic instability. So the first astrology column printed in a newspaper was in 1930, right after the stock market crashed. In 2008, after the financial crisis, astrologers were getting phone calls from Wall Street bankers. In fact, uh, one astrologist, her name's Rebecca Gordon, said this, all of those structures that people had relied upon, 401ks and everything started to fall apart. That's how a lot of people get into it. They're like, what's going on in my life? Nothing makes sense. One report found that Americans spend $2.2 billion annually on mystical services, which would be palm reading or tarot reading. Astrology app CoStar is backed by $6 million and has been downloaded 6 million times. What do we learn from this? That when tragedy hits, that when evil hits, 
people turn to something. When evil seems to reign, when evil seems to win the day, you turn to something. The evil of a virus or the evil of a leader or the evil of a, of a, a boss at work, whatever it may be, you turn to something. The question is, to whom or to what do you turn? That's the question we're going to be answering. And to answer it, we're going to look at the depth of evil and the defeat of evil. First, let's start with the depth of evil. In the beginning of chapter 6, we see increasing corruption on the earth. It concludes in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. What did this wickedness look like? Verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Who were the sons of God? They were men of power. They were cruel and oppressive tyrants who were, instead of administering justice, instead of fulfilling the cultural mandate to, to rule the earth under God and for God, they were ruling the earth for selfish gain. They were using creation for selfish gain. And, and these tyrants bore children. That's what we read. They, they took wives, they took lots of wives into harems. And in these harems, they bore children. And these children were the Nephilim or the mighty men, as verse four describes. Who were these Nephilim mighty men? Well, a couple chapters later in Genesis 10, verse eight, it talks about a man named Nimrod. He was a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter who was ruler of a kingdom. What we learn is these men were characterized by physical strength. They, they were characterized by political and, and military might and dominance. Probably the most revealing is the end of verse four, how these Rulers were viewed. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These were men of standing. These were men of reputation. These were men of fame. That the culture had become very corrupt. And yet, what they were doing, their behaviors were, were celebrated in the culture. This was a culture in which illicit sexual gratification. Self-serving power that oppressed others, success, dominance, was valued and was celebrated. That was the culture at hand. Now, the explanation of sons of God and of mighty men has a number of interpretations. There's another interpretation I think is helpful to really help us to see what's going on here. The, the sons of God in other parts of Scripture, Daniel, uh, in Job, even in 1 Peter and Jude, speak of the sons of God as angels. And even the, the mighty men can be interpreted or translated angels. So what do we do with this? Well, I think those two, these two come together. So you have these tyrants that are abusing power, oppressing people. And what we see is that they are being controlled and influenced by the evil one. That there's demonic power behind their actions that behind the physical acts of evil are spiritual forces of darkness. Behind a culture that is evil and corrupt are the spiritual forces of darkness. That's what the Apostle Paul 
speaks of in Ephesians 6.12, when he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, so what? Why is this important to understand? Because if you don't understand the depth of evil and the strength of the enemy, then you'll bring the wrong weapon to the fight. You'll bring the wrong weapon to the fight. Recently, my family has been watching the old Star Wars movies. It's been so much fun. As you can imagine, uh, my son has picked up on lightsabers and uh, sword fighting and play sword fighting. So we in the backyard have begun to have play sword fights with our lightsabers, but our lightsabers are the, uh, the black tube on our baseball tee that we can pull off and in the tube uh, splits in half. And so we have two black tubes that become our lightsabers. And my son and I will play sword fight. And if he hits my arm, it'll fall off and go behind my back and, and we'll keep going. I, fun, no big deal, right? What would happen if one of us had a real sword? the black tube from the baseball tee wouldn't be very effective in that fight, right? You don't bring a piece of PVC pipe to a sword fight. Now, now let me apply this to a place of corruption in our culture. Mass shootings have become so incredibly prevalent. The innocent murder of People, the attack on the image of God is horrifying. But the reality is, as horrifying it is, and as evil as it is, and as demonic as it is, if you don't understand the depth of that evil and what we see in those mass shootings, then you'll bring the, the, the wrong weapon or an insufficient weapon to solve the problem or an insufficient tool to solve the problem. What's the general, just generally speaking, what is the cultural response to a mass shooting? It's legislation. Gun control. Now, I'm not making any political statements about gun control for or against, but if we divided the congregation up between those who were for gun control and those who were against, we'd have people on both sides. We'd have people on both sides. It's not that legislation's bad. God uses law, civil law, to restrain evil. It's just insufficient. It's insufficient to defeat evil and to change a culture. If you don't understand the depth of evil, then you'll bring insufficient Weapons are tools to the fight. In the midst of our current crisis, coronavirus crisis, there are a lot of insufficient tools that we can try to grab hold of. The president, Congress, Federal Reserve, biochemists that would find a vaccine for the virus, none of those are bad and there are actions to be taken. But ultimately, they're insufficient. Evidence is this past week when the federal government announces 
the largest or plans for the largest stimulus package ever, $1 trillion to be poured into a falling economy. And what happens the next day to the stock market? It plummets even more. If you don't understand the depth of evil, then you'll turn to things that are insufficient to bring change or to bring hope in the midst of it. So evil is demonic, it's culture corrupting, but there's a danger here. As we start talking about this, there's a danger that it can become us versus them. We're good, the culture out there is bad. And that's a dangerous place to go because our text says something very different about where evil is. It's not just out there in the culture that evil exists in every human heart. Look at the end of verse five. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Evil's not just out there. Evil is in every human heart. There's two words in here that are key. The word continually, it means whole. So that means the whole heart, not just parts of the heart, but the whole entire heart is evil. And then, of course, every intention, every thought of the heart, that's getting beyond behavior level. Evil is not just behavior. Evil is desire, that the desires and the motivations of the heart are corrupt. Jeremiah 17, 9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So what? Why is this critical to understand? Again, if you don't understand the depth of evil in your heart, then you will bring insufficient tools to the fight or insufficient weapons to the fight. I want you to imagine that you had a piano that was out of tune, but you didn't know it. And so you ask your child to come play the piano and they get on the piano and they start playing and it sounds awful. And you think to yourself, goodness, I thought my child had learned to play the piano by now. So you think, well, let me go get my neighbor, my neighbor who I know is a good pianist to come play the piano. So they come to your house, they sit down, and they play your piano, and lo and behold, it sounds atrocious. And you think, wow, my neighbor has really regressed in her piano skills. So you go through a couple more iterations, you finally bring Mozart back from the dead, and you put Mozart on your piano, and you have him play, and lo and behold, it sounds atrocious. And you finally realize, you know what? Maybe there's something wrong with my piano. And yes, you realize that your piano is out of tune. And it doesn't matter who you put on it. It's not going to play good music. Our hearts are out of tune and unable to play good music or to play music that is pleasing to God. If you don't understand that, 
the depth of evil in your heart, then again, you will run to insufficient resources or tools to try to fix it. Could be drilling down on your will, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, ratcheting up the disciplines in your life, spiritual disciplines. Could be ramping up accountability. Those aren't bad. They're just insufficient to fix the problem. They're insufficient to defeat the evil that's in your heart. If you don't understand the depth of evil, you will turn to insufficient resources in an attempt to defeat the evil. So how is evil defeated then? How is evil defeated? First, I want you to note how God responds to the corruption that has come into his world that he created. Look at verse six. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That word sorry can also get translated repented or regretted. Now, this is a tough verse. What does this mean? What does it mean that God was sorry or that God regretted making man? Well, that same word for sorry or regret is used, the same word in the original Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, is used in 1 Samuel 15, 29, where it describes the Lord's rejection of Saul as king. Verse 29, the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or have regret. That word regret there is the same word as sorry in Genesis 5. For he is not a man that he should have regret. But then a couple verses later, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What do we learn there? That the sorrow and regret of God is very different than the sorrow and regret of man. When we speak of something that we regret, we're saying, I made a mistake, I wish I wouldn't have done that, and now I wanna do something different. Not so with God. This is not speaking of regret in that way with God. God is unchanging. God doesn't throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Uh, God doesn't just try a bunch of stuff out and see what works. Nor does God see things go uh, upside down in his world and go, oh, I made a mistake. Why did I do that? That's not God. He's not fickle. He's not fickle to where he changes his mind or his behavior abruptly. God's character is unchanging. So what does it say of God that he was sorry or that he had regret? This is powerful. It means that God suffers, that God allows himself to be pained by what happens in his world the evil and sin in the world, the corruption on earth caused him to grieve deeply. 
God experiences pain without being controlled by the pain. We may not know why God allows pain and suffering and death to continue. We don't know why God has allowed a pandemic into his world. But we do know what the answer is not. It's not that God doesn't love his world or that he doesn't care for his world or that he is detached and immune from the situation. On the contrary, God is grieved deeply. He takes our pain so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. That when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, a perfect man who had done nothing wrong, when he hung on the cross, he absorbed the pain of every plague, every virus, every sin, everything that does not belong in God's good world was put on Christ. I love the way author John Stott speaks of Jesus' death on the cross. Listen to this. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears, and death. The defeat of evil begins with a God who is not immune to the pain caused by the evil in his world. But he doesn't just feel our pain, he actually does something about it. Look at verses seven and eight. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's response to evil is extreme. He doesn't go soft. Many of you may read this and have a very visceral reaction to it. In fact, for some of you, this may be the reason why you struggle with Christianity, or it may be the reason why you struggle to submit to a God like this. The language of I will blot out man whom I have created does not necessarily drum up warm, fuzzy feelings towards God. But what I want you to see is that you actually do want a God like this. You do want a God like this. You want a God who takes evil seriously. You want a God that is absolutely committed to eradicating the evil that has destroyed his world. 
you actually love justice. Though you may not think about it, you love it. And you would realize that if someone maliciously hurt someone you loved. And in that moment, you would feel justice rising up in your heart. You see, we want justice and judgment out there where crimes are committed on a daily basis, but we don't want judgment and justice in our hearts where we commit crimes against God every day. God's judgment is not favoritism. There's no favoritism to it. God's judgment falls on the little lie you speak in the same way that it falls on the man who murders someone. God's judgment is just. God's judgment is his loving commitment to remove the evil cancer that is destroying his good world. And that's a God to be worshiped. God's judgment is extreme, but there's something else that's very extreme in this passage. In verse eight, equally extreme. Look at verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's judgment is extreme, but God's salvation is extreme. That word favor in verse eight means grace. Noah found grace in God's eyes. What's that mean? Well, Noah and his family should have been blotted out like everyone else. Noah was deserving of judgment. His family was deserving of judgment because they were sinful. Evil was in their hearts. And yet he found grace. You know, this is where our children's Bibles oftentimes or our children's stories do a massive injustice. When we read a passage like this and we say, God judged the bad people and God saved the one good person, Noah, and his family, and that is just not true. Noah was sinful. Noah was bad. He found grace just in the same way in Genesis 3.15 that God converted Eve's sinful affections for Satan into righteous affection for himself. So here we see God removing Noah's wicked heart that desired sin and self and giving him a heart that desired God's righteousness. What you read in the next verse, in verse 9, that Noah was righteous and blameless and walked with God is a result of the grace that God poured into him. Grace precedes obedience. Obedience doesn't earn grace. Noah was a man and his family who experienced the extreme salvation and grace of God. Didn't deserve it but in God's sovereign grace, received it. The defeat of evil begins with a God who's not immune to the pain caused by the evil in his world. It continues with God's response to evil with extreme judgment and extreme salvation. But it ends with evil being defeated through one man. One man. How are we to view Noah? 
Look at verses 28 and 29 in chapter five. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. We learned about a Lamech at the end of chapter four. But the Lamech from, Seth's line, or from Cain's line is very different than the Lamech from Seth's line here. The Lamech from Cain's line sought to remedy the situation through revenge. The Lamech from Seth's line here seeks deliverance from the curse. And he finds the man. He finds the man that is going to deliver and bring relief. And that was Noah. What's important to see here is that Lamech is referring with the pain, painful labor and the work that he speaks of. That's Genesis 3, 16 and 17 language, which follows Genesis 3, 15, which is the promise from God that he's gonna send a deliverer. Lamech's putting the pieces together and saying, wow, a deliverer is here who can deliver us from this pain and this toil and give us relief. And Noah would go on to deliver, as we'll see next week with the flood. But note here that Noah's family was delivered because of Noah, that Noah represented them. Noah was the deliverer. They simply received the deliverance because of Noah's work. Now, Noah ultimately would fail because Noah was a human deliverer. And there were a number of human deliverers in the Old Testament. They all failed because they were looking for the ultimate deliverer. When we read genealogies in the Bible, chapter five is one of those genealogies. What do we typically do at genealogies? We skip over them. We skip over them, we yawn, but genealogies are critical in the Bible, in the Old Testament, even into the Gospels, because what they are are God's people tracking the seed of the woman out of Genesis 3.15 to find the one that was going to remove the curse and bring deliverance. And of course, all the human deliverers along the way, Noah, Moses, David, these covenant heads failed, but they were pointing to the one who would come the God-man, fully human, fully God, Jesus Christ, who would be the one to deliver from the curse, defeat evil. It's so important when you read stories like this that you identify with the right person in the story, that you attach yourself to the right person in the story, because who you attach yourself to is gonna dictate how you think you're gonna be delivered. If you attach yourself to Noah in this story, if you identify and say, wow, I'm Noah, well, then you have just set yourself up to be the deliverer. You've set yourself up to deliver yourself. You're not Noah in this story. You're Noah's family. You're Noah's family that is dependent on someone else to deliver, someone else to bring deliverance. What we learn here is that 
when evil hits, when tragedy hits, when suffering, when sin hits, that we turn to something or someone for deliverance. None of us sit in tragedy, none of us sit in hardship, none of us sit in evil or sin and think this is just good. We all seek deliverance and we all attach to something or someone is critical to attach to the right person. In this story, we attach to Noah's family who looked to Noah to bring deliverance. And of course, now this side of the cross, we attach to Jesus Christ, who's our deliverance. It's really fascinating when you look at what happens in our world after a national tragedy or some or a pandemic that we find ourselves in. Whether it's a bombing, a shooting, a pandemic, it's interesting what happens. I read an article this week that was written right after the bombing at the Boston Marathon in 2013. Listen to what this article said. An emotional night in Boston during the Bruins game last night showed just how strongly something as simple as a hockey game could provide much needed solace to a devastated community. It's no anomaly that games immediately after disasters become forums for banding people together. We saw it, no, we felt it after the Columbine shootings when the entire community rallied behind the high school's football team. We felt it after Katrina with the Saints in the Superdome in New Orleans, at Virginia Tech football games after the mass shooting in Blacksburg, when the Newtown community that had its spirits lifted by a buzzer-beater game-winning shot at the basketball game on senior night. Sports are a truly powerful thing. They can act as an antidote in times of tragedy, a little Novocaine to numb the soul. In this current chaos, in this current uncertainty, there is much Novocaine available to numb your soul from the anxiety, the fear, the stress that you may be experiencing over the collapse of your 401k, over the loss of your job, over the potential loss of your job, over the stress of learning how to virtual school your kids for the foreseeable future, over the depression of feeling trapped and isolated in your home. Novocaine is temporary. When Novocaine wears off, the pain comes back. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. He won't numb your pain, but he will speak a lot louder than your pain. And he will announce his victory that is yours by faith. Let's pray. Father, 
whether it's the pandemic we find ourselves in or whether it's a tragedy in our country, we've seen so many of them, or whether it's just personal tragedy in our own lives or whether it's just our own sin, it's so easy to feel like or to feel like evil is reigning and winning the day. And even in this passage, we see that in, in, in the absolute chaos of corruption, we see you doing a work of grace. And Father, we know in the midst of our current crisis that you are doing a work of grace, that you are sovereign, that this hasn't caught you by surprise. And yet we confess the many ways and the many things that we turn to that ultimately don't numb the pain, maybe for a brief moment, but the pain comes back. And Father, we confess and believe that your son Jesus doesn't take away our pain, but he speaks louder than our pain. Oh, Father, there are so many in our body that are hurting right now. Pray that in your sovereign grace, just like you did with Noah, that you would turn the affections of their hearts to you and to your son, Jesus. And that you, Jesus, would bring a peace that passes all understanding, that you would replace anxiety with peace and fear with love. Bring your assurance that you have defeated are defeating and will defeat evil, that you are returning one day, and that when you return, there will be no more death, no more pain, no more crying. And by faith, we access that now. Oh, Father, if there's those here or those gathered in homes that have never trusted your Son, we pray that your spirit would draw them in this time of uncertainty to a place of absolute certainty, to an unwavering hope. And Father, as we continue to worship, would you fill our hearts with the lyrics of these songs that we, we would sing these lyrics all day, good news lyrics in the midst of news stories that are negative and bad. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.